source of joy to you. You've got pictures of them. You've got little remembrances of them. And you think back, especially if they're grown up now, to some of the funny things they did. Uh, Your children, you would probably agree, are also a test of your patience as well as a source of your joy. In fact, it could be that God wanted to develop such patience in you that He gave you your children. As I was flying over to Israel, I noticed that the newspaper, USA Today, when I was going over, had a special article about the memories that parents have of their children growing up. And uh, some of the good things and some of the uh, bad things that they did. And uh, one lady named Marie Modesto from Danville, Pennsylvania, recalls, when Lisa was 11 years old and a typical, selfish, rude, and disagreeable, almost teenager, I confronted her with an exasperated query as to how she managed to be welcome in her friends' homes. She looked at me indignantly and she said, you don't think I act like this at other people's houses, do you? (laughs) Another mother, Lori Fuller, from Bethel Park, Pennsylvania, said, Nancy had quite a temper as a child. After one stormy session, when she was five or six, she stomped up to her room and she called down, How do you spell hate? I called the answer up to her. Two minutes later, she yelled again, How do you spell love? And I answered her again. Soon after, a note came fluttering down the stairs that read, Dear Mommy, I hate you. Love, Nancy. Verse 12, the fifth commandment, is a key principle behind all human relationships. When you grow up with respect for your parents, you grow up also with respect for all of society and people's rights in general. In fact, in the early days of the Roman Empire, it was said that a person became a good soldier and a good citizen by learning how to obey his father and mother at home. But this fifth commandment is not to be taken as a cold rule for children. Do this. This commandment has much to do for parents as it does for children. Because how you treat your father and mother as parents now, having father and mother and children also, your children will be able to look at that and they'll honor you the same way. A woman by the name of Joy Davidman retold one of Grimm's fairy tales about a couple who had not only a child living at home but brought in two children living at home but brought in grandfather to take care of him in his old age. Grandpa started losing it. He started putting food in the wrong places like his ear instead of his mouth. It got sloppy at the dinner table and so they decided to finally separate him and not allow him to eat at the dinner table. Eventually they took away his fork and his knife and they built a trough for him to simply bend down his head and slop his food up. One day the parents heard a noise out in the shed. They went out back and they asked their kids, What are you building? They said, We're building a trough for you when you get old. The moral of the story is your children see how you honor your parents now and you want your children to honor you now and later on in life, but they'll see by role modeling how you treat your parents. This commandment, I'd like you to notice five things about it. I know it's only one verse, but there's several lessons in it. And we'll start from the beginning. Number one, this commandment deals with human relationships. The first four commandments deal with a relationship between me and God. 
The last six deal with my relationship to human beings. And that's the kernel of life, isn't it? Relationships. If you strip away everything in life and get down to the irreducible minimum, what do you have? Take away cars, take away homes, take away clothes, take away ambitions. You've got relationships with God or the lack of the relationship with God and a relationship with people, good or bad. You've got relationships. And that's often where our greatest failure lies, in relating with other people. Why is that? I suggest to you that it's because the first part of the Ten Commandments are not understood or kept by people, and they have a lot of trouble then keeping the second part. Until you are rightly aligned with God and your relationship with God is in proper order, your relationship with man will not be in proper order. At this church, the staff pastors, much of their time during the day is spent in counseling. And if you were to stop one of them and say, what do you counsel mostly? They would say, people regarding their relationships. That's where people fail the most. We also get lots of unbelievers, that is non-Christians, who come to the doors of this church weekly and ask for counseling. It's free, so you can't beat the price. And so they'll come in and they'll start talking about the frustrations they have with their wife or the frustrations they have with their husbands or their children. And the frustration is the inability to get their act together relationally. They sense that there's a problem. It's hard to forgive or to accept forgiveness. And the greatest opportunity we have is to tell these people, your relationships with others will never work the way they ought to work until first there's a relationship that you've established with God because you need a greater love and a greater power outside of yourself, the love that you experience from God to enable you to love others and to forgive others as God wants you to forgive. So the first part of the commandments are necessary for keeping the second part of the commandments. I often get letters from people that testify to this. They'll say things like, This is what I was before I came to Christ. Now I have a relationship with God. And it's amazing how all of the other relationships seems to just fall into place. Recently, I received a letter from a gal who came to this church as a non-believer, gave her life to Christ, um, driving her car up to Taos from Albuquerque. And I don't have time to read the whole letter, so I've taken a few excerpts from it. She said, After a week of intense harassment by God, I bought a Bible. I bought the Bible to disprove this religious stuff. I spent four hours with pen and pad and my best academic prowess, unable to find one contradiction in all of Daniel's prophecies. Now I was in real trouble. She said, the Bible, by the way, was purchased from Calvary for $66.11 with a hot check. True confessions. The next day I received a gas deposit return for $66.76. Naturally, I covered the check at Calvary while not trying to notice the coincidence. I was floored and furious. Could I have found even one inconsistency, I could have justified my sin in my own mind for a lifetime. Then she says, I was traveling to Taos in the car. I started talking to God. I felt like he was speaking to my heart. And she said, I told God I knew I was a sinner. I knew I'd make a lousy Christian, but if he wanted me that bad, I was his. The rest of the letter speaks of just how her life has changed in one paragraph. 
I read, by all standards of my 30 years of life, this last year has been the worst. I was wrongfully fired and I had to fight to fix it. I was in a car accident, injured my back right before I was due to move across town. I had my best friend's children disclose sexual abuse to me. On and on it goes. But I haven't once felt God leave me and my faith has not wavered. God has carried me through and has blessed me enormously. An amazing change in that person's perspective from before she came to know God and after she came to know God. And so the commandments begin. Honor God. Don't worship false gods. Honor His name. Keep His Sabbath. And then God deals with the relationship between human beings and each other. second thing I'd like you to notice about the commandment is that the commandment deals with the basic unit of relationship, and that is within the family. When God created man upon the earth, as soon as He did it, He said, it's not good that man should be alone. He did not exalt man's individuality. He said, it's not good that man should be alone. He brought the man a woman. They had children, and it was a family. The family has divine origins. And you can tinker all you want with alternate lifestyles, but they won't work well because that's not God's design. God's design is man, woman, having children, propagating the race. That was God's design from the beginning. In a family, there is the greatest potential for fulfillment and joy. And at the same time, greatest potential for sorrow. When you get that close to people, and you know what it's like, if you're recently married and you're experiencing the transition and the uh, becoming acclimated to one another, you notice that there's times of great satisfaction and bliss, and at the same time it gets very tough. But the family is where you begin. I have a plaque in one of the rooms of my home that shows a little child going out the door, and a simple statement by T.S. Eliot, home is where you begin. Home is where life starts from. The rest of life is molded from the relationships you have within the family. And the family, folks, is the foundation for any country. If the nation is going down the tubes, it's because the family is going down the tubes. As the family goes, so goes the nation. Because a nation is simply the sum of all of its families put together. And if there's problems in the nation, there are problems in the family. The scary thing is that our nation is so quickly moving away from God and moving away from the family. It makes sense. If you push away the first four commandments, love, honor, serve God completely, if you push that away, it only makes sense that the family, the home, relationships are going to suffer. You push away the first part of the commandments, you're going to push away the second part of the commandments. Often people quote an experiment about putting a frog in a cool pan of water on a stove. And it's said that if you... I've never tried this, and I would not recommend you try this in your home. I just believe the literature. They say if you put a frog on a stove in a cool pan of water and increase the heat slowly, that that frog will stay in the pan of water and boil to death when the water reaches that temperature. Because the change in the water is so gradual that to the frog it is imperceptible and the frog will die. And that's an analogy of the family in the United States. Changes are occurring daily through news articles, uh, sitcoms, uh, news agencies, 
lifestyles of people. The changes are occurring, but to so many of us, they're gradual, we don't perceive them, and it is clear by looking around at our country that Christians should have jumped out of that pot a long time ago. The divorce rate within the church is almost identical to the divorce rate in the world. Abuse of parents toward their children is almost equally as high as well. A book put out a few years ago by Alvin Toffler entitled Future Shock. Alvin Toffler speaks about the disintegration of the family in the United States. And he compares old-time polygamy, that is a man having several wives at one time, like in ancient days, with modern marriage lifestyles. And he says, Under the old rules about polygamy, you had lots of wives at once. Now you just have them one after the other. The water is boiling, and yet we're imperceptible to it. Um, we no longer live in a society we once did. Don't think that this culture of modern-day, what I call post-Christian America, is sympathetic anymore to the family. We have lost the luxury of living in a society that embraces and supports the church and the family. That's left long ago. Go to any college campus. Listen to professors and teachers speak about their ideas of the family. One teacher on a college campus recently said, we must free the child, and to do that, we must do away with parenthood and marriage. We must settle for nothing less than the total elimination of the family as we know it. And of course, all the kids are going, yeah. There was a couple that moved from Czechoslovakia to the United States of America. And after being here a while, the husband wrote a letter to his pastor, and he said, My wife recently visited our native country and returned with sadness in her heart. The godless system has destroyed in great part the will of the people and produced an obeying array of cynical, indifferent, disposable robots. But what scares me the most, he continues, is that the same process of liberation movement and jargon that I heard 25 years ago is happening right now in this country, and we have to go through it all over again a second time. Now, we won't be naive. There's no such thing as a perfect family. But folks, times, they be a-changing. The family is looked upon very differently than it once was, and it's certainly not a model, in this country at least, of the biblical family. The third thing I'd like you to notice about this commandment is that not only does it deal with the relationship of the family, but it deals with the very first relationship within the family, which is not a husband and a wife as much as it is a child to the parent. The first relationship you ever had in life was a relationship with your parents. What was the first word that came out of your mouth? Probably mama or dada. The first relationship any human being has, apart from Adam and Eve, is the relationship of that child toward mother and father. And so the commandment deals with the very... That's why the commandment is stated this way. It's not addressed to husbands or to wives, but to children honoring their parents because it's the very first relationship that one person will encounter. And so it's a foundational commandment. Within this first child-to-parent relationship, several things are developed. Number one, a child develops a view of himself within the family, either a healthy or an unhealthy view depending on how he was treated by other people, other members of the family. Secondly, 
a child develops a respect for authority, or he should within the family. If a child learns to honor and respect and obey mom and dad, that child will learn to respect other authorities. He'll learn to respect teachers, coaches, government, and God, ultimately, by how those values were shaped in early childhood. And thirdly, values for life are learned in this primary relationship. You see, the greatest teacher is example. The greatest teacher is role modeling. And a child will learn what matters most to mom and dad just by watching, just by growing up. That child will learn if pleasure, money, pursuit of happiness, being away from the kids is important to mom and dad, or if relationships, serving Jesus Christ, involved in Christian work, if those things are more important. And the value that that child sees in mom and dad will be carried through the rest of that child's life. They'll be formed early within that child. The commandment to honor and respect parents was so important in the Old Testament among Jewish culture that the penalty for disobeying, dishonoring, and cursing father and mother was the same penalty as blaspheming God. It was death. Keep a marker here. Turn to the right to Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 20. In Leviticus 20, in verse 7, the Lord commands, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother. His blood shall be upon him. That's heavy duty. Um, that's ultimate discipline. Not only to the children of Israel, but many ancient cultures placed a high premium on obedience to parents. In the early Greek days of the philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, even Plato said that respect given to your parents comes only second in giving respect and honor to the gods. In Roman culture, and I mean in ancient Roman culture, today in Roman culture, what I saw there this last week does not at all model the early culture, and uh, in many ways that's good, because in early Roman culture there was a law called the patria potestas, which meant dad had ultimate authority over his child as long as dad was alive. Under Roman law, a child never came of age as long as dad was alive. A child never owned his own property as long as dad was alive. Dad could order his child to be imprisoned, enslaved, or executed even if the child became a Roman senator. It was absolute authority. Now, I admit, that's very radical. But the point being, in ancient cultures, respect toward parents was very important, not only in Jewish society. In our society... It's becoming easier and easier to break the fifth commandment. There's a lot of talk now about children suing their parents. And after all, he's three years old, he's got his rights. 
What right does mom and dad have to tell him what to do? He's lived a good, long, healthy three-year-old life. Scripture predicts apostasy. And Paul wrote to Timothy with these words, In the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents. Did you know that in the United States every year, there are 8 million reported cases of aggravated assault, serious aggravated assault from a child to his parents? Some of you know that a few years ago, I did the funeral for a husband and wife who were bludgeoned to death by their son and buried in the backyard, right over here in Albuquerque, West Side. Now, next I'd like you to notice a word in verse 12. This is the fourth point, that this command regards an attitude, not just an action. For it says, honor your father and your mother. Honor. The word honor in Hebrew is kabad, and literally it means to weigh something. The idea of this word is that you have an attitude that you add weight to what your parents tell you. You respect them enough that you say, you know, your advice, your authority means something to me. It weighs something in my life. And it speaks of an attitude. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 repeats the commandment. He says that we ought to honor our father and our mother, but he says... Obey your father and your mother, for this is right. Obey. Obey has to do with action. Honor has to do with attitude. Now, why didn't God just say, do what they say, kids. Obey them as the first commandment. Because I figure it this way. God knows the tendency we have to get bad attitudes toward mom and dad. It happens, I think, to every child at some point in their life. There is that tendency. Oftentimes, when a child becomes a teenager, maybe even preteens, adolescent, junior high, uh, they come to a place where mom and dad aren't so smart. Now, when they were young, mom and dad, they were impeccable. They were perfect. Dad especially, he was the hero. But... Uh, after a few years, you realize, you know, dad's kind of a geek. Doesn't know as much as I thought. Kind of a wimp in certain cases. Mom, she's old-fashioned. And a disrespectful attitude can develop. A lot of times I'll walk into my son's room. It looks like a nuclear disaster area. I'll say, buddy, clean your room up. My concern is not that he has the picture-perfect room. I don't care how it looks. I don't live in it. But I'm concerned about the attitude with which he follows through with the command. I don't want to have to threaten him with, if you don't do it, I'm going to spank you. I'd rather have him with a good attitude, even if it's not a perfect cleanup job, with the right attitude approach the task. Philippians tells us, do everything without complaining or arguing. If you are still living with your parents, and let's say you're sitting next to them right now and they're nudging you right about now, (laughs) or they think, I'm going to get this tape for my kids and send it to them this week, and you listen to this message by tape, take this to heart. A bad attitude puts a cloud over a home like nothing else. A good attitude lifts that cloud and brings harmony within the home. There's nothing like having a good attitude. 
And kids, next time your parents ask you to do something or tell you to do something, instead of going, how about saying, sure, love to do it. You might shock them, but you'll please the Lord. For the scripture says, obey your parents, for this is right. And the Bible tells us that it's pleasing to the Lord. It's an attitude. This attitude of honoring implies respect for your parents. Respect them. I remember in high school, it was kind of vogue to call your dad, my old man. Remember that? And kids say, you know, my old man, my old lady. And as much as I had struggles with my dad, and I did, believe me, I had a hard time growing up with my dad. I could never bring myself to call him the old man. I couldn't do it. Others could. Even my brother began to call my dad Lou, his first name, even to his face. And I said, I don't like that. That's disrespectful. I have a hard time with him too, but you don't call your dad by his first name. You call him father or dad or sir. It implies respect. Be careful how you address your folks. My friend Franklin Graham still calls his father sir and his mother ma'am. And when I go to Franklin's house, his kids, from the youngest to the oldest, if dad or mom addresses them, they'll say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Now, that is novel to me. I don't hear that much. We're trying. We're working on it. (laughs) When your folks give you advice, listen respectfully. That's the hardest thing for a kid to do is when, especially in the teenage years, you sit the kids down, you start talking to them, and the kid knows. He, can, he, can, he could say, Dad, stop. I'll tell you exactly what you're going to say. I'll finish the sentence for you. Right? You know exactly what their advice is going to be. Zippa-de-lippa-da and listen courteously. They've lived longer than you have. And to honor them implies you'll respect what they say. doesn't mean that everything is right or that you'll do everything they say, but listen courteously. I still do that to this point. Honoring your father and your mother also implies appreciation. Think of it this way. Your parents put a lot of money into you and a lot of time, a lot of worry and concern. I didn't think so until after I had my son. When I watched my wife get pregnant and bigger and nauseated and then she had my son and that was a, I watched the grimace on her face as he came out. And then we changed dirty diapers and we were up every night giving him food. And that goes on and on through life. There's hockey lessons, there's music lessons perhaps, there's sports during high school, activities, college, and on and on. There's a lot of investment. And it's not just money, it's all of the concern and worry as well. But it's been estimated that soon the average parents will spend $250,000 to raise one child from infancy to 18 years of age. One of the quickest ways to crush the spirit of your parents, one of the quickest ways is to not appreciate them. After they have given their all, whether you disagree or agree with the way they brought you up, you want to crush them, don't appreciate them. You want to lift their spirits up, appreciate them. You'll be amazed when you say, Mom, that was a great meal. Or Dad, I appreciate your hard work. Mom, thanks for doing my laundry. Now they might think, what has gotten into you? but it will lift them up. It's one of the main lessons I try to teach my son. Appreciate your mother. All those little things that she does that you won't have the benefit of one year, one time. 
Also, this attitude of honoring doesn't end when you leave home. I feel that we need to say that because I'm speaking to mostly people who have left father and mother, have cleaved into husband or wife, and now you have your own family. And so you're thinking, this is a great message. It doesn't have anything to do with me. That's why I like it. It's for my kids or for somebody else. But honoring goes all the way through life. All the way through life. There is a cycle of life. It seems that life ends exactly where it begins. You're born totally dependent on mom and dad. You're not born walking down the street. You're born totally dependent on mom or dad. Then the second phase is you grow. And as you grow, you become more independent, less vulnerable, making your own choices. Then thirdly, you leave the home. You establish your own family. You become very independent. You start having children of your own. Then fourthly, you pass into midlife and your vigor and your energy goes down. You spend it all on your kids for them growing up. Then the fifth stage is that you grow old and once again you become very dependent, but not on parents because they're gone, but on your children because they're left. And some of you are or will face what it means to honor father or mother in their old age. And it's becoming more and more of an issue in this society as the average age is getting older and older every year. Soon you will be facing, perhaps, caring for your parents as they're very weak and helpless on their deathbed and in their old age. The greatest example that I can find of this in the Scripture is Jesus Christ. Even on the cross, hanging between heaven and earth, paying for the sins of the world, he looked to his mother and he said, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He made sure that his mother had proper care before he left. In fact, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they figured out ways to teach other people to get out of this responsibility of honoring their father and mother through life. In Matthew 15, Jesus tells them, God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is dedicated to the temple, then he is released from honoring father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. They were running around when their parents needed the help, money or furniture or supplies, and they'd say, Mom and Dad, love to help you, but all of my money, all of my supplies is dedicated to the Lord. Can't give it to you. They figured out a way of not honoring their father and mother with a religious traditional excuse. In many cultures, like Japan and even some of the ancient cultures, I really appreciate their philosophy. Did you know that the older a person gets in society, the more valuable that person becomes? It's the opposite in this culture. We look for the young, the innovative, the one who's quick and sharp and you can kind of clear all the clutter in the corporate structure and make his own way. And The older you get, I uh, not useful anymore. But in ancient cultures, they figure, hey, this guy's lived a long time. He's earned every gray hair. Let's listen to his advice. Let's see where he's coming from. And I like that. And finally, fifthly, notice that this commandment carries a promise along with it. For it says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Now, what does that mean? That means, well, if you obey mom and dad, that it's a guarantee that you'll 
live long. No, the idea is this. Parents are given as a safeguard to their children. And if you listen to them as they make right choices for you, your odds for living increase. William Shakespeare said, The voice of parents is the voice of gods, for to their children they are heaven's lieutenants. Consider the protection that parents give their children. When a kid's young, he's unable to make the right choices. He's unable to make good judgments. The last few days while we were traveling through Rome, as buses were rushing on the streets, my son is not watching those buses. He's looking at where he's going to go, what store is there, is there the Colosseum or whatever. He would have run into about 40 buses if it were not for our restraining hand pulling him back or saying, Nathan, stop. Now, if he decided, I'm not going to obey father and mother, his life would not be long upon the earth. But a child's chances of living long are increased by listening to the guardianship of the parents that God has given him. Kids don't have senses of danger. Razor blades are toys. The shampoo looks fun to drink. And so mom and dad are given to safeguard that child. So Solomon wrote to his son and he said, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. He went on in Proverbs 20, 20 to say, If a man curses his father or mother, his lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. One, he was speaking about the Old Testament penalty for disobeying your parents. Or two, he was speaking about perhaps his half-brother Absalom, whom he remembered disobeying his father David, being pursued by the armies of Israel and dying a horrible death. Parents, It is absolutely deadly to allow your children to reach their own conclusions unguarded by you. They're unable to. That's where discipline comes in. Loving discipline comes in. It was Solomon again who said, He that spares his rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him at times. If children are permitted to act beyond the control of parents... They will grow up to abuse authority and they will become destructive. I want to quickly add something to that, though, because I'm sure if you're a parent, you're going, yep, that's right, that's right, that's exactly right. I want my kids to listen to that one. I discipline them and I should. As much as you ought to be honored, parents, you also ought to live honorably. That's also important. That balances it out, I think. It's not for a parent to say, hey, the Romans did it, I'm going to do it. You do what I say. Don't do what I do, do what I say. But a parent is to also act honorably. In the New Testament, there's a balance. Paul says, children, obey your parents. But right after that, he says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Free translation, don't drive them nuts. Act honorably. Take your parenting so seriously that your children recognize, hey, mom and dad are into this. They like being my parents. They're not trying to push me away. They love me, and I'm secure in their love. And then, as you're acting honorably, raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, as the Bible says. There's no greater joy than to lead your child to Christ, to take his or her hand and have them pray a prayer to receive Jesus Christ. There is no greater thrill. Charles Spurgeon said, Before your child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. 
That's one of the greatest thrills for any parent. When you act honorably, it'll be a lot easier for your kids to honor you. I want to end with a broader conclusion and an application. If it is right, and it is, to obey and honor and respect earthly parents, it's much more honorable and right to respect your heavenly father. The writer of Hebrews said, We have had human fathers who have corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily in subjection to the father of spirits and live? If it's right to obey your parents on earth, it's better to obey your parents in heaven. I'm trying to teach my son something, and I know it's early for him to grasp this concept now, but the more I reinforce it through his life, I think he'll be okay later on. As I'm teaching him to obey me, I'm trying to let him know that he is accountable to a whole other authority structure than me, that he has a heavenly father who will be in places that I will never be, who will see things I will never see. And I want him to learn to start depending and honoring his heavenly father. Now, some of you this morning, no doubt, look back and you've had bad relationships with your dad, and some of you are using that as an excuse now for the way you live. But you've got a perfect parent, or at least you've got one who wants to be a perfect parent. You've got God who wants to be your heavenly father, and he's not yet. You may have come to church, you may be a religious person, but you've never said, I am a sinner, Jesus, come into my heart. Lord God, I want you to be my heavenly father. I surrender my life in a personal relationship to you. And you need to do that. Bob Benson truthfully confessed how he felt in a couple of paragraphs in his book. He said, not... Long ago, in fact, nearly a year ago, Peg and I had a very hard week. Wednesday night, Mike slept downstairs in his room where children belong, and we slept upstairs in ours where mom and dads belong. Thursday night, we were 350 miles away, and he was in Ramada, room 325. We were in 323, connecting rooms. We left the door open and talked, and we laughed together. Friday night, 700 miles from home, He was in 247, we were in 239, but it was just down the balcony and somehow we seemed together. Saturday night, he was in the freshman dorm and we were back in room 239. Monday night, we were home and he was 700 miles away in Chapman, room 309. Now, we've been through this before. Bob Jr. had gone away to college and we gathered ourselves together until we'd gotten over it mainly because he's married now and he only lives 10 miles away and comes to visit often with Deb and Robert III. And so we knew how to handle separation pretty well. But we came away lonely and sad. Oh, our hearts were filled with pride for our fine young man. We kept our minds filled with memories from tricycles to commencements. But deep down inside, somewhere, we just ached with loneliness and pain. Somebody said, well, you still have three at home. Three fine kids. There's still plenty of noise, plenty of ball games, plenty of responsibilities, plenty of laughter, plenty of everything. Except Mike. And in parental math, five minus one doesn't equal plenty. And I was thinking about God. He surely has plenty of children, plenty of artists, plenty of singers, plenty of carpenters and candlestick makers, plenty of preachers, plenty of everybody. Except you. And all of them together can never take your place. 
And there will always be an empty spot in his heart and a vacant chair at his table when you're not home. And if once in a while it seems like he's crowding you a bit, try to forgive him. It may be one of those nights when he misses you so much he can hardly stand it. Honor your father and your mother. But the core reason for doing that is that you might learn to honor your heavenly father, the perfect parent. You might have had excuses. Well, I had less than perfect parents. It was a horrible environment. Maybe so. I'm not trying to excuse that. But your heavenly father is very different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given as one of the top ten commands to honor as an attitude of respect our parents. We recognize that they are not perfect. We are not perfect either. But we pray, Heavenly Father, that we might make a decision to honor them at home and after we've left the home. That we might train our children to honor us by that role model. And I especially pray that many would come to know Jesus Christ, your son, enter into the family and honor and respect and obey you as a heavenly father this morning. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.